Hello out there, all you fantastic felids. Welcome back to another week of A Little Greener, a podcast all about nature, conservation, sustainability, all things outdoors, animals, environment. We love it all. I am one of your hosts. My name is Sarah, and I am here with my stupendous co-host, Casey. Hey, Casey. Hey, guys. I like where you're reaching with the adjectives today, Sarah. I'm trying. Um. I, I feel like I, my tendency is to say the same things every week. I have to think of more more ways to describe you when I introduce you. In Diversify our vocabulary. <laughs> yeah. I, hey, everybody. Hi. Welcome. Sarah, how's your week? My week's good. For those of you who are just turning in, to, turning in, tuning in for the tuning first in. time. Maybe you're turning in for the night. You're tuning in for your pod. Hey. <laughs> Don't fall asleep on us. You are <laughs> tuning in for the first time. Casey and I are conservation educators. We have done this professionally. We're not currently doing that professionally, but we enjoy doing it so much that we're doing this for free just to chat with all of you people about things that we care about. So we used to work together. We now live very far apart, which is sad, but we get to do this together. And so it's a great way for us to keep in touch and hopefully help make the world a little greener. So that's why we're here. Yeah. Casey, I've had a pretty good week. I don't know if I've talked about this on the podcast before, but my, my nature story for the week actually relates to last week's podcast. We talked about invasive species. I've had these bugs. I think I've told you about this. Yes. Yeah. Bugs all over my house. And I thought I knew what they were, but I wanted to, to double check it. And sure enough, I go back and looked a little bit deeper. The the insect that they had initially be, been identified at is not one that lives in Florida. So I did a little more searching, figured out what kind of bug this was, and figured out the bugs themselves are, I don't believe, an invasive species, but they are here because apparently I have a tree that is invasive in my yard and that these insects have adapted to this invasive host tree and they are everywhere. What? So a little story for you about how invasive species can have an impact. So the bugs thankfully are not damaging. They, they are not destructive to the house. They are not destructive to plant life or anything like that. So it's really just a nuisance for me to have all of these insects covering the sides of my house and occasionally getting in through the window cracks and things like that could be worse could be better would not be happening without an invasive species in my yard so there you go do you know what kind of tree it is I can't remember off the top of my head I should have okay, prepared yeah, yeah. better no, for this story okay. but uh, I'll, I'll have to look I'm it up again curious. but yeah we'll have yeah. to find oh, out I'll, you should yeah, take I'll a picture you. You know. and you should yeah. share it to our I, well yeah. I need to find it I haven't actually identified which tree it is oh, around okay. my house so it actually could be my neighbor's tree too so we'll see but yeah <laughs> knock, I'll, knock. I'll have further <laughs> updates yeah cut down your tree please so I'm pro tree but anti that one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so we'll see. We'll see what happens. I'll keep you posted, but how's your week going? Awesome. Uh, it's going all right. The house hunting search hasn't, uh, yielded much results, but I do have a nature story that was actually from last week that I forgot to share. I saw my first wild skunk. Um, oh yeah. Uh, it was early in the morning. I was walking ginger out in our yard and because we're in our yard, she's not leashed. Cause she poops better if she's mm-hmm. not confined to a tether or whatever. <laughs> sure. 
but she, she, uh, yeah, that's how she feels at least. So, um, she is squatting to pee and I see this little skunk and it was like bounding. So imagine oh like almost gosh. like a squirrel, like, beha- like movement, but it is a skunk and big and adorable. Like the morning light streamed yeah. through the trees and the skunk is just like, Oh, the morning. Actually, he was probably like, Ugh, I mean, broad daylight now. Um, cause skunks are crepuscular. They like mm-hmm. dawn and, and, and dusk, but I was very concerned because any sort of bounding mo- movement is gingers. Ginger. Like, oh jam. yeah. <laughs> so I was like, ginger, look at me. And I was doing like that thing where you like point at your eyes and yeah. point at her like, come on. And she's like in the middle of peeing being like, what? Cause I, you know, I try not to interrupt her. She's right. like, uh, okay, what? All right. And she's done. I'm like, great. Let's go outside. Let's go outside. And she was like, uh, okay, I'll get a treat there. So thank goodness. Luckily, yeah. Because that could have ended really badly yeah. if she would have spotted it first. Yeah. So. Wow. She's but I've never seen a skunk before out in the wild. So yeah, now that you're saying this, I don't know that I have either. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. We, uh, I was fun. Yeah. yeah. Oh, thankfully, thankfully it managed yeah. to stay fun for you. We had a fun, our mutual friend, Kristen was in town. So I got yeah. to see her and while I was driving her to the airport and she, I didn't see it, but she actually saw an armadillo. So it was Very not cool. one of the animals. I don't think that we talked about in our Florida wildlife episode, but uh, I've actually seen one alive since I moved down here. And then she saw that one. So yeah, fun. I think we talked about that before. That's so cool. I love dillos. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you know, this wasn't originally the plan, but this week we're going to kind of continue an invasive species yes. talk to a certain extent, but it's going to probably go down a different path than you probably think of like, we, we talked a little bit about like removal of invasive species. And I think about people pulling plants out and things mm-hmm. like that. We're going to talk a little bit about a little bit of a different subject. Uh, we're going to talk about, uh, domestic cats and how they impact our environment, what our options are as far as controlling this invasive species. And we, Sarah and I are both cat lovers. We are both Big into I, cats. Yes, I self-identify <laughs> as a crazy cat lady. So love them. there you go. This is not an anti-cat conversation. I just want to put that as a preface because all of the scientists that I saw interviewed said that they get a lot of hate mail <laughs> from people who think they don't like cats, even though many of them also self-identify as cat people. So we're going to be talking about them in the context of outside your home. Um, but I wanted to know, Sarah, like this is not necessarily as upbeat of a uh, question, but this is what got me started thinking about this topic. What has been your experience with outdoor stray cats? So it's interesting. It's a broad question. I've been around outdoor cats a lot. I feel like both where I'm currently living and my previous house back up in Indiana, all of my neighbors had outdoor cats. So some of them, it was very obvious to tell which house the cats actually belonged to. And then there would also just be cats all over the neighborhood that I would be driving by and be like, do you belong to anybody? Are you just wandering around? Like, are you feral? Are you, is somebody taking care of you? And and it was hard to tell. So both my, like I said, current and past neighborhood have had those issues previously, just in terms of stray cats had to interact a little bit at my places of work. When I've worked at zoos in the past, occasionally we would have cats on the property that we had to call into pest management basically to try to catch and 
relocate or typically I think take to animal control because of concerns for them passing on disease in part to the animals living at the zoo. I have also earlier in my life had a cat that was an indoor outdoor cat. It wasn't ours and it wasn't our choice. It actually sort of came with the house that we bought oh, okay. when I was a kid. They had, I think it was like seven cats the previous owners had oh, that wow. were indoor outdoor. And when they moved, they took the cats with them. But this one cat, I guess, did not want that new house to be her home. She just kept coming back to our house. So we sort of took her in, but she was very accustomed to going out when she wanted to go out. And so we let her do that. And I didn't, this is when I was in elementary school. So I, you know, I didn't know the things that we're going to talk about tonight then. And so, so we did that. There are things that I would not do <laughs> again in, in terms of that, knowing what I know now. So we'll get to that. Yeah. I, the reason that I wanted to pick this topic is I got a distressed call from my mother, like a couple, maybe a month or two ago at this point. Um, my mom has been the somewhat unwilling adoptee of a outdoor cat, mm. um, who now lives primarily in her house and occasionally goes outside. But other cats have decided that this is probably a pretty good gig for them too and have tried to also get in on the deal. And she has drawn the line. (laughs) Only Molly is allowed in the house. She doesn't want to be the person who's collecting all the cats. She's not really an animal. Like she likes animals, but she has said basically, this is the first animal that she's had that has actually felt like her buddy. Like most Uh of the time, they're just kind of like house guests slash sources of stress for her, but this one's like her buddy, but she, you know, had another cat outside and it was injured and she was in distress about like, it's too cold out. I don't want it to be outside, but I also don't want it to be in my home. Mm -hmm. What can I do? And this has generally been my experience with outdoor cats. So I lived in an apartment complex that probably had a colony of 12 to 20 outdoor cats. And they were all super skittish except for one who we nicknamed orangey because we're extremely creative. (laughs) Um, And we would find them, you know, you'd have to bang your car to make sure they, they got out of it when it was cold. You had to make sure that you were careful where you're going. And Andrew actually had to take one of their kittens to the vet to be euthanized because it'd been hit by a car. So my interactions, that being said, like my cousins have had outdoor indoor cats that have adopted them. Like we had let my cat growing up outside. So there's a lot of like very gray area, blurry lines, but for the most part, my interaction with them has been like from a point of concern, often from their well-being, And that is before even thinking about what their impact is on the environment. So today we're going to talk a little bit about cats as an invasive species. And then some of the options that we have explored for figuring out how to live with outdoor cats or not live with outdoor cats. So stick around. We'll be back in just a couple moments to talk about that.
All right. So last week, Sarah introduced us to invasive species of all kinds. And if you haven't listened to that episode, I highly recommend going back and listening to it because we're going to talk about some of the tenets of like what makes an invasive species, what makes an invasive species successful in different types of environments, what their impacts are. And we're going to do that through the lens of cats. We're approaching this from mostly a conservation lens, but we're humans who like cats. So (laughs) I'm sure we're also going to talk about things we really like about cats and how amazing they are too, because that's why they're such a big threat um, is because they are amazing animals. We're going to talk about basically any cat that spends time outdoors. It's kind of a broad, like amalgamation of statuses. Sarah, can you like kind of describe the categories maybe of cats that reside outside? Well, I feel like there's almost a spectrum, right? And I I was thinking about this as you were talking too. So there are feral cats. These are not cats that live with people and they will often be very skittish and fearful and not want to come near. These are just quote unquote wild cats (laughs) that that are, they are the domesticated cat species, if that makes sense, but they are living on their own. A lot of times they will have colonies of these, these feral cats. And then you do have those folks who have cats that they just let go outdoors. So these are pet cats. Again, I see cats sitting out by my driveway every morning that has a collar on. I know that he's cared for in some way by somebody. Sometimes people will just kind of let their cats go outside and come and go and don't do anything. They just let them. They're not vaccinated. They're not spayed or neutered. They may or may not have food out for them, those types of things. Then you'll have those people who do take their cat to the vet regularly. They feed them inside, but let them go outside whenever they want. There's also, I was thinking about this barn cats, which is another Mm -hmm. thing that I've had uh, some experience with, which is almost a tricky situation because I've I've known a lot of barn cats that basically do just stay in their barn and they don't really leave their barn, but, and they're usually fed there as well, but they sort of have the freedom to go wherever they want. So there's lots of different, I almost think of them as working cats a little bit, if you will. So there are lots of different ways that cats could have access to the outdoors and lots of different sort of backgrounds that they could come from. And they can all have an impact on their environment, perhaps in varying ways, which we'll talk about. Yeah. It really like is dependent upon how, how long they spend outside and and what level of care they're getting. Otherwise it's worth noting that even if these are pet cats that are fed, we do know that they still feed on native species. Mm -hmm. They have attached cameras to these cats. They have uh, recorded these cats bringing back pieces of prey to their owners. We know that they still hunt Mm -hmm. regardless. So you're not off the hook if you're feeding um, the cats. In fact, it may be even worse if you're feeding community cats, which is kind of the other category. I feel like of cat that maybe like we all know about, but don't necessarily recognize as a category of cat where like kind of everyone owns them. Like everyone knows that they're around. And that was sort of my mom's cat, Molly. She was frequenting all the houses around and getting fed at all of them. And, uh, and I guess one of her neighbors had mentioned that they missed that she was coming by because she was spending now time almost exclusively at my mom's house. But the thing about these cats is they are no matter what, whether they're owned or, or not having an impact on the ecosystem cats are ranked really highly as far as really dangerous invasive species. Some people will put them at number one. Some people will put them behind rats or the chytrid fungus, which has killed off a number of frog species in South America, which I think is like basically tells you how seriously we should be taking cats as an invasive species. Um, So Sarah, last week you talked about 
some characteristics that make animals or species like plants a successful invader in a ecosystem that is not their own. What are some of those characteristics that cats have that make them such successful invaders? Yeah. So some of the things that we talked about were kind of adaptability to environment. So cats are pretty tough. They're pretty hardy. They are found across the globe. So they tend to do people. And again, you know, I'm from in Indiana is where I grew up. And, you know, so we have these cats and I do think about that too. Like during the winter, you know, that's where I start to worry most about them, but you know, they figure it out, they make it, they're tough, they're survivors. They also have to be pretty quick reproducers. We talked about being able to grow and reproduce fast enough to get that population established. Cats can start reproducing when they're really young, less than a year old, potentially even as young as maybe four or five months, honestly, but average is going to be probably more like six to nine months or at the earliest, but they're going to be reproducing before they're a year old. And they're also polyesterous. So they can come into heat multiple times a year. They can come into heat pretty quickly after they have a litter of kittens. So they're pretty good at reproducing, which helps them get that population established. And we talked about them as predators. Like you said, even if you're feeding your outdoor cat, they're still going to be hunting. I can attest to that or that cat that we had when I was growing up. Her name was Jessie. I did love her. Uh, She, (laughs) she would bring things back and we would find things on our doorstep that we didn't want to (laughs) find on our doorstep. So they are great predators as well. Yeah. And, and they're not picky. <laughs> they're, they're not picky about their prey. Good point. Um, they are considered generalists, so they're not picking one particular species and eating it. They're eating bunches. This may sound funny to you if you're like me, who's had an indoor only cat that was very picky <laughs> about his food. They might get a little spoiled, those indoor only cats. But yes, generally those cats as hunters, they are not going to be picky. Yes. They're not always necessarily going to be eating what they're hunting either. They are just hunters. That is their, their instinct and they are not murderers. Yeah, they are. (laughs) We are generous about that. Yes. Uh, a study in Britain looked at the prey species that outdoor cats were taking back to their owners and they documented 20 species of mammal, 44 bird species, four reptiles, several amphibians and invertebrates. And a similar uh, study in Italy documented 207 different prey species that pet cats were bringing home. Goodness. Yes. And this is almost definitely an underestimate because other studies have shown that cats only bring out, bring back 10 to 23% of prey items to their owners. So there is a lot of, of uh, stuff that's not being documented. And, and this is problem number one, right? With cats. Well, maybe not problem number one, but this is a, a big problem in terms of perception of cats that I think people will push back on cats as invasive species. Cause they're like, Oh, well, my cat doesn't do this. My cat doesn't eat all of this. And again, I think there's probably a range. Yes. I've seen some barn cats that I'm like, I don't think you could <laughs> catch anything. <laughs> you are, you are very, uh, a slow mover here, but they are doing more than we see them do. If they are outside and you are not monitoring them, they're doing more than you think. But it's so hard to get that in our minds if we're not seeing the actual impact. Right. Yeah. 
uh, talking about pickiness, like my cat Rue is like a kibble man all the way. He won't touch wet food, but mm-hmm. he will, he will kill mice and he mm-hmm. will try and hunt basically anything that he can try and get near. Um, if the bird was not far away from him, she would be fair game as well. <laughs> um, something that makes the cats different from different, uh, from other invaders is that they're consistently helped by humans. Um, we supplement their food. We vaccinate them against diseases. And while this might have some positive effects, like preventing the spread of disease to other species, it unnaturally bolsters their population numbers by making sure that like the natural things that would kill them off would, uh, have a harder time doing that. That being said, I have this lower in, in our outline, but Sarah, like, let's just talk about it now. Why do people let their cats outside? I I don't think it's an unreasonable or malicious thing that people do. No. What what is motivating people? I mean, I, like I said, for us, it was just that that was the way the cat was used to living. Like the cat asked to go out my parents didn't ask to have this cat. So it was honestly just the easiest thing for everybody. Well, like how wants to go out? Well, this will make everybody happy. And then it's, you know, less for, you know, my parents to have to deal with, although I think they, we all wound up liking having her around, but you know, so that's just kind of how it worked out naturally for us. But I think people think that their cats want to be outside and I can understand that, you know, my cat would love to sit in the window and watch what was going on. And he would try to get out every once in a while. So I think people think they are doing their cats a favor by letting them go outside. Yeah. And it's not just like, I I would actually probably agree with that. Cats do want to go outside. There's lots of cool smells out there and stuff to kill. Like it sounds great, Uh, but it's not necessarily good for the cats to go outside. That's sort of the, they, they think that it is beneficial for, for the cat to be in that outdoor environment, to have all of those natural things. It's basically like, I wish my animal could be free, but also still be mine. And I think that that comes from a really great place, right? Yes. Like they want their cat to be happy. Sorry. It looks like you're about to say something. I, well, I'm just, I, I want you to be able to finish your thought, but I will say it just as a small illustration for how it's not, yeah, agreed. The, the cats do want to be outside, how it's not going to be a beneficial thing for their life. Small illustration, not making this up for the podcast within the last week, since the last time we recorded, I have seen two cats dead on the road. And it like, I am (laughs) emotional about cats and this might make me cry just talking about it, but like that breaks my heart, two of them within a week. Like, you know, so that's, it's a tough life (laughs) for those outdoor cats out there. And that's just one small example. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, if you have a cat at home and it stays inside its whole life, it has a general life expectancy of living into its teens. If you have an outdoor cat, they typically live between two and five years. So of course, road mortality is one of the biggest things. And I always think like, whose cat is like, is that Mm -hmm. somebody's cat that they're missing? And they just don't know why it never came home. Um, I feel like some people just think like, oh, well, it went off and did its own thing. And I will say too, that 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 was the ending with the story of Jesse, our cat, that you know, she would go out at night. She would come back in the mornings. She would walk to the bus stop with us. And then one morning she, she went out at night and she never came back. And I like, I don't know what happened to her and it was devastating. So it's hard. 
it it's, it's super tough. Um, I, I had a coworker who just went through it that her cat who normally came home every day, didn't come home. He luckily came home the next day and she knew that something had happened where maybe he had encountered another cat or a predator and maybe got into a fight. So she was keeping him indoors. They can get hit by cars. They can fall victim to disease. There's also like not cool people out mm-hmm. there. There are people who will take cats and use them as bait animals for dog fighting or for other nefarious reasons. You just don't know what the outcome is, but typically they do not live a normal lifespan living outside. So I think part of this comes from the fact that like, I think as a kid, I was conditioned that cats don't care about you and they have no needs basically like feed them and clean the litter box. And otherwise they just sit in the sun. Um, and the only way for them to have a happy life and, and Rue's running around proving everything, um, basically like, oh, and, and, but if you let them outside, they can do their wild things that they wouldn't be able to do indoors. Lots of natural behaviors can be supplemented indoors. We have uh, scratching posts, cat trees where they can climb up high. Um, we've got just different toys that you can supplement your cat's play. And we know that those have really positive effects. With yeah. Them. They're little like cat plant things like grass that you can yes. grow oh, yeah. to roll around. And there's all those like perches you can hang in the windows so they can look out Open the windows. The there are yeah. like little cat habitats now, even catios. Like, yeah. Catios <laughs> like cat sunrooms basically that you can get and set up for them. So there's lots of options. Lots of options. So all of this to say is that they're the people who let their cats outside or supplement feed cats are generally cat lovers and they want the best for them. Um, and it just should be noted that like this, it, as far as I feel like one of the major measures of whether or not an animal is well taken care of and, and living a good life is length of life, longevity. It's obviously not the only measure, but your cat being outside will live markedly less long than cats living exclusively in, inside. So uh, all this to say, yep, we, we love cats. It's not good for them either, but now let's focus on why it's not so good for everybody else that cats are yeah. <laughs> outside. Um, so what are, we talked about some of those impacts on ecosystems that invasive species have. What are those impacts for cats, Sarah? So yeah, a couple of the big, big ones in general that are true for cats as well that we've talked about are the, the prey species. So we talked about how cats are fantastic hunters. And so having these predators that were not native to a specific area, and again, that is true of cats, people brought to them here, that that they can basically destroy prey species populations. So that's one, it's just their hunting prowess uh, and their their ability to, to hunt, not so much care what they're hunting and hunt things that they're not even going to eat sometimes, all of that can cause harm to uh, prey populations that can also in turn be detrimental to other native predator species if they are losing access to some of their normal food sources. And then we also have talked about invasive species as a vector of disease and Again, especially those feral cats, or if you have a cat that you're like, hey, it's an outdoor cat, I don't need to take it to the vet regularly, that's not getting up to date on its vaccinations and those sorts of things, they can spread disease to other cats, to people, and to wildlife. 
Yeah. And we're going to go into just a little bit of specifics are those, because I don't want these just sort of be like nebulous things mm-hmm. that be, like, these are very specific. I want to think there's this really amazing meta analysis that we'll link in our, our show notes in, in the description of this episode that really broke down a lot of these statistics. So this is where a lot of those numbers are coming from. And you will see other sources in those uh, show notes as well. So they've contributed to the extinction of 63 species, which includes 26% of contemporary extinctions. So they are a major cause of extinctions for a lot of species out there. They are specialized in small prey animals. Um, so mostly small mammals, even though we hear a lot about birds and a large number of birds, obviously they kill reptiles and amphibians. They're the number one predator for nestling cat birds in one study. Another study in Alameda, California showed that cats reduce rodent populations in half, which might sound like a good thing. And this is actually an argument that people have is that they stop rats and rats are also an invasive species which is true. Um, but in this study, 70% of that rodent population were native meadow voles, deer mice, and harvest mice. So it's not, rodents are not exclusively a pest, even if that's how we Mm -hmm. view them. They are also parts of the ecosystem. And one of the things that I found really interesting, I I think it'd be cool to do a whole episode about this is fear impact where the presence of a predator can change the behavior. Right of prey extensively, even if they're not killing the animal, the the animals are getting the heck out of Dodge because they don't want to get eaten. Um, so they found that the president's, uh, presence of a taxidermied cat, um, found that blackbirds reduced feeding their young by a third and increased their chances of being preyed upon by crows and ravens because they didn't have as much parental supervision because the parents were afraid of the cat. The other, another study showed that where cats were responsible for just 1% of the mortality, they reduced bird uh, abundance by 95%. That's insane. 95%. Wow. The birds were like, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> I've seen 1% of us go and the rest of us are not dealing with <laughs> goodbye. Um, and we see this, this in natural ecosystems where it's a good thing, like in Yellowstone national park, when they were introduced wolves, the elk population were more likely to move from one area to another. So they wouldn't overfeed on grasses. We see the same things with sharks and sea turtles overgrazing on sea grasses. So fear impacts can have all sorts of cool dynamics on ecosystems, in a but when natural you natural ecosystem, yeah, natural ecosystems, yeah. but when, yeah, you have this invasive predator, all of a sudden animals are changing their behavior. These are not robots. They're learning from all the, the input around them. And they're going to learn when an environment is no longer safe, especially to raise their babies. They found that a lot of areas where cats live are like sinks for populations. Other areas have to produce more animals to supply that area with the prey species. Based on mortality species, cats are the leading cause of population decline in both birds and small mammal populations, at least in the U.S. This means that they cause more deaths in birds than collisions with glass buildings, cars, and uh, poisoning. So all that rat poison that you're looking for, killing native species, and uh, cats are still killing more than, than even all of those factors. And we've had dedicated episodes already to roadways and we've talked a lot about glass windows and birds and that sort of thing so here you go this is just again trying to illustrate giving you that yeah (laughs) comparison there um you talked about disease transmission sarah um what types of diseases you went to vet school for a little bit so you probably know (laughs) some of this stuff what kind of diseases do cats carry why are we vaccinating them 
past Sarah 12 years ago could have given you a really good answer to this question. <laughs> Current Sarah uh, has to use her notes. <laughs> so, I mean, rabies is a big one, of course. Matt, that is a thing that mammals carry. I think, and I don't know if you came across this and I meant to check myself, but that cats are actually more, it's rabies is more prevalent in cats now than in dogs, I think. In- in my studies, at least it showed that dogs are more of a threat to humans. I think cats sure. are more likely to catch it okay. um, because they're out more, but dogs are more likely to interact with people and then pass terrestrial rabies to people. Yeah. So, uh, but in any case, there's the, the rabies, which is one of the things hopefully you vaccinate your cat for, as well as a feline leukemia virus, which is a virus. It's not cancer, although cats that get infected with this virus. Cancer is one of the possible outcomes. This impacts their immune system and this can be spread as well. If you have ever been pregnant and had cats or or been around people that have cats, you may be familiar with toxoplasmosis. This is something that uh, has potential to cause miscarriages. So you'll hear sometimes that women who are pregnant should not clean out litter boxes. You just have to be careful. It's, but it can be transmitted through their feces. So that's something that you want to be careful about. And they are also things like, obviously you can see cats with fleas. If you've ever heard of cat scratch disease, cat scratch fever, that is a real thing. That's a real disease. And it does act, it gets transmitted through typically the bite or scratch of a cat. And it is from flea feces basically so but those are just yeah. Yeah, that's attractive right <laughs> but you know so that's just a small sampling and again these can be dangers to people they can be dangers to other cats they can be you know and you know this could be if another reason to not let your cat outside not just because it can spread it because it could get it Mm-hmm. You could get these diseases. And then also these things can be spread to wildlife as well. Toxoplas- I think it was toxoplasmosis actually that I was reading he- here in Florida, the Florida Fish and Wildlife has a page on feral cats. And I believe has said that had they been found in manatees. So, Yes, I, I did read that it, it hurts marine mammals. It causes miscarriages in domestic sheep, um, which is a motivation factor for an island off the coast of Australia to eliminate their cats. They can impact primates. And it is actually a major cause of death in sea otters. So if you think cats are cute and that's your motivating reason, gosh, sea otters, guys, that's, that's <laughs> impacting their populations and manatees. Um, and they did trace feline leukemia back to the deaths of five Florida panthers. So we did talk about them in our mm-hmm. Florida wildlife episode. Um, it impacts other species. And I saw a scientist arguing that the CDC should get involved in figuring out our solutions for feral cats because of their potential impacts for transmitting diseases to humans. So uh, the last one, which we've never really talked about before is hybridization. So there are small native cat species all around the world, and they are close enough related to our domestic cats to reproduce with them. And it ends up they would consider polluting the genetics of that population. So one of those is Scottish wildcats, um, which are super cool. And uh, I saw a documentary on them on Netflix. So uh, that's one of their issues is that they are seeing more and more of the natural characteristics of those wildcats diluted by the DNA and breeding with uh, just domestic and feral cats. That's everywhere. interesting. That's not one that I 
thought about before, honestly. Yeah, it's it's different. I mean, like a lot of species, you don't have to really think about that. But cats, there's a lot of different cats out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's important to note that uh, the cats are just compounding these issues that are already impacting species. You got habitat loss, fragmentation, degradation, climate change, roads, like all of those things just multiply on each other. <laughs> it's it's uh, it concentrates populations in different areas. It makes it harder for them to rebound from a species like cats. So they are just another impact that humans have brought to this ecosystem. All right, cats, a problem. <laughs> we like them and they're a problem. <laughs> yeah. And they're a problem for themselves as well as for other species. Yes. Outdoor cats, it's not good for them. It is not great for the environment. So uh, there's been lots of debate on how to control cat populations to reduce their impact on native ecosystems. And also just like from a human perspective, we don't like to see dying cats everywhere. So there have been a couple different movements. We're going to talk about one that's probably the most popular in the U.S., and that is TNR. Sarah, can you explain TNR to us? Yeah. So TNR stands for trap, neuter, release, or trap, neuter, return, I guess, depending, but same, same thing. And it is basically what it sounds like. So this is, if you've got an area where feral cats are a problem, folks who do trap, neuter, release, and this is oftentimes small rescue type situations, they will take in these cats, they will spay or neuter them. So they're not able to reproduce a lot of times vaccination as well and make sure they are healthy and then return them to the population. Or sometimes you can, you can have different sort of variations on this where, and sometimes it depends on the organization. Sometimes it depends on the personality of the actual cat that they will be kind of taken in and fostered and tried to find a an actual home for them somebody to adopt them and take them in but sometimes they are just returned to the outdoor population as well but in a a state where they are no longer able to reproduce and hopefully protected against disease yeah the really the goal is to protect them against disease and then over time, reduce, the, reduce population. the population of cats by not allowing them to reproduce. So I was going to give you this hypothetical about how hard this is, um, but I found a case study about it. So we're going to talk about one of the earliest successful, um, and that is key, a successful effort for TNR. And it is in Newsbury Port, Massachusetts. This town had about 16,000 people and a bunch of restaurants along the waterfront area. And in the early 1990s, there was a large feral cat population that were considered a nuisance by the restaurateurs and were becoming a concern because they were actually very much sustained by people feeding the cats scraps from the restaurants or dumpster diving, looking for leftovers. And they were disrupting customers and business owners uh, were seeing these malnourished cats. Some of them were feeding them. Some of them might've been poisoning them to try and get rid of the population because everybody recognized whether they liked cats or not, that there were just too many of these cats. They were showing up dead on boats, trying to get warm there. It wasn't a good situation. So in 1992, the Merrimack River Feline Rescue Society uh, devised a TNR plan for the waterfront. They talked to the local business owners and they got their buy-in, basically saying this is a a way to help solve your problem. And they took a survey of the cats. They estimated that there were about 300 of these cats along the waterfront, which is a lot of cats. And they came up with a plan. The plan was to 
One, trap the cats. And they did this by setting up feeding stations. And they had volunteers that were dedicated to each of these feeding stations. And they would keep track of all the cats that were at each feeding station. And they would have weekly meetings where they would discuss with each other, like, oh, have you seen this cat move to this colony? Like, I saw this cat isn't doing super well. And because these cats were then ready to eat from people, they were able to trap them. And so number two was they tested them for disease. And in the early parts of the study, if they came up with feline leukemia, they did euthanize those cats because they didn't want it to spread. Later in this process, they decided it really wasn't worth it because they could vaccinate a lot of the population of cats against it. But about five to 10% of the cats, because they didn't keep really great records from that long ago, tested positive for this virus and were euthanized. Uh, Healthy cats were neutered and vaccinated and at first they were just releasing those healthy cats back into the, the waterfront area with the idea that they wouldn't reproduce and that the numbers would slowly go down. What they found over time also is that they would trap when they did have kittens, they would trap the young kittens for adoption. They would terminate pregnancies for pregnant cats. And they found that not all the cats despite them thinking that maybe they're just all feral, lots of them were friendly. So (laughs) they started actually a rescue in the town that didn't really exist before in the nineties as an option for adopting them out. So within six months, they had already TNR'd 200 of the 300 cats, which is pretty impressive and shows how dedicated they were to that. Within a year and a half, they had to establish the shelter for friendly cats. And over time, they think actually this helped because owners were less likely to just put their cats that they didn't want out into the waterfront, they actually had a place to take them that they thought they could get adopted out. So they think that that helped reduce the additions of those pet cats out into the, the general population. By three years, there were only 200 cats left in the waterfront. And by 1998, the last two litters of kittens were born on the waterfront. In 2009, the last feral cat, which was one of the kittens from those litters, passed away at like 16. And over the course of the program, about a third of the cats were adopted out. Some were returned. At one point, they uh, built this outdoor enclosure for feral cats that wouldn't have to be at the waterfront anymore. And now there's no cats. They have no feral cats in this community, thanks to this effort. So from 1992, it took until 2009. (laughs) That's fantastic, though. I love it that. is. It, it's an incredible effort. It shows what determination can do. So what are those positives to TNR, Sarah? That, this is an example of a, a successful case. You'd think like, well, this is how we do it, right? Like, what are the positives? Yeah. Well, I mean, the, in my mind, and we'll talk about this more to go along, this, this is how you do it. And I understand we'll talk about the negatives too, but I do like this as a cat lover, right? I, I don't want to, and we didn't, maybe get into the, as much of the specifics of this last week when we talked about invasive species in general as I wanted to. I mean, cause there's an ethical dilemma for me right yes. there. I don't like, there are some invasive species that we are told you talk, we did talk about this. You talked about with the, with the lantern fly cane toads here. Like if you see them, you're supposed to kill them. And I understand it. I have a real hard time actually. Like i I don't know outside of maybe an insect because bias <laughs> that yeah. I don't, I don't know that I'd be able to do it. And I definitely would not be able to do it with cats. I would have a real hard time 
with it, even understanding all of the things that we just talked about in terms of conservation. So I think just emotionally for people, it's hard. It would be hard to get folks behind a program that was going to involve euthanasia of a lot of cats. It's really sad for me to think about having to do that. So um, I like that. And I think it's better for these cats too that to have have that those vaccinations and you know so I think it it helps maybe improve the quality of life of those cats as well. A hundred percent. They found that uh, those cats lived longer. They were able to identify cats that were having trouble and like help them because they knew literally every cat that lived on this riverfront. They were able to figure out like whose kittens are these and like where did this cat come from. <laughs> um, so. Yeah, it's it's got lots of positives. Like no one really wants to kill cats just because they don't like cats. Like we, we would love for for them. There is is really an ethical dilemma for for people, including myself, that the life of the individual cat doesn't matter basically in this scenario. It's the health of the ecosystem that should be prioritized. And I can get behind that like in my brain, mm-hmm. but gosh, I you look at a cat in the eyes and you're just like, <laughs> right. Well, and, and also too, and Casey, you can, you can check me on this if I'm like, I mean, if you feel like what I'm saying is not really a, a fair statement, tell, cause I, that this might be, I'm not a scholar. I'm not somebody actively studying this or doing this, but we talked last week too, about kind of the steps and the stages in invasive species control in general. And we talk about how prevention is the best. We're well beyond that. We talk about eradication and I, like, that's the, like, I, I, I am not going to sit here and say we should eradicate the outdoor, all of the outdoor cats. Like, I just, I don't think aside just from the general negative feeling towards that, I feel like, I feel like cats are in this stage where they're established. They are an invasive species, but they have an established population. So I don't know that eradication would be the choice that we would go with. I feel like we're more in this control stage with cats as an invasive species in general, just, you know, like we would talk about with any other more sort of typical, what you would think of as an invasive species. And so I like TNR as this sort of control method. Does that seem fair or am I just showing my feline bias? (laughs) (laughs) Um, so in this case, TNR was eradication in this case, it was, that's true, right? But it's not, it's also not eradicate. And I mean, I guess that's why cats are harder because we're not eradicating a species. Nobody's talking about eradicating domestic cats as a whole. We're talking (laughs) about getting them out of the outdoors. And so, yeah, I guess you're right. I guess that's true. I don't think that TNR could do that is as a worldwide population, you know, over time. I don't know. I don't know that that was, so I guess that's where maybe I'm coming from. Yeah. But I think, so this is, it's, this is functional eradication, right? So we're trying to keep the number of outdoor cats lower. I think that's, and that's maybe more the balance that I would want to strike with this. And if we can eradicate by rather than killing them by taking away that ability to establish a population and find homes for them at the same time, 
I like that. That's your... <laughs> it's not a perfect system, but I like Sure. That. We're going to have a section on like what I think should happen at the end. Okay. <laughs> I, I went through a lot of this. One of the arguments, so there are several organizations that I decided not to pull resources from because I felt like their bias towards mm-hmm. cats did not hard. provide, yeah, it didn't provide a, um, like, for example, in this, this whole study, no one said we need to get rid of cats to save the birds. There's like, this was specifically actually a cat welfare, human nuisance issue. This had nothing to do with their impacts on the ecosystem. Um, some of the, the proponents for feral cats have argued that like when, when we identify them as an invasive species, we were asking the environment to go back to a artificially selected time period that can't be replicated. Like what point does a species become invasive? How long do I have to be here to not be invasive anymore? And I think these are valid questions. Yes. I would say the wolves don't exist here. (laughs) We're not like the cats do not have a predator. Normally a a predator this size, I mean, coyotes will eat them Mm -hmm. in Australia. Dingoes will eat them, but they are not at an area where they can control the population Mm -hmm. in sort of a meaningful way. So you have this unchecked mid-level predator that, that does specialize in a certain size prey, not a certain species, but a certain Mm -hmm. size prey. Um, so we're going to talk about that, uh, outside the U S let's talk really quick about the downsides of TNR. Yes. Why did you say that this wouldn't work on a on a big level because you have to have people doing it. And I know I have friends and acquaintances that have helped work in TNR and it is hard, like just from even just seeing secondhand, some of the things that they go through, it is, it it can be physically hard. It can be emotionally draining for these folks having to do this. And I mean, if you think about how often our animal shelters are overworked and underfunded, that's an issue here as well. So having just the personnel and the funds to have these programs available all around the world, as we've said, cats are all around the world. uh, That's pretty much impossible right there. This is also not solving all of the issues with cats. As we've talked about, there is a whole spectrum even though these cats are going to be better off and they're not going to be able to continue growing that population in the however many years it was. 17 years. Yeah, almost, I was going to say almost 20 years. uh, That that case study that you just talked about, Casey, those cats can still hunt wild animals. (laughs) So they they can still contribute to that overhunting and the competition with the native predators. So- it's not a perfect system for sure. Yeah. And I mean, it also like, I think that maybe some people don't see TNR as, as the solution that the Newsburyport was able to eliminate their, their cat populations. Most of the time when I hear TNR described, they're mostly looking at keeping cat populations under control Mm -hmm. so that they don't exceed a carrying capacity, basically. Um, Basically no one argues that Newsburyport didn't work. It worked. But TNR as a a rule is not universally successful. Um, A paper by Castillo and Clark in 2003 showed that TNR efforts in two parks didn't work the way they thought they would. Uh, One population stayed stable and the other population rose um, despite 
volunteer efforts. They were like, this has nothing to do with the dedication of the people who were involved. They were just as dedicated, but people, uh, another paper argued that the reason it didn't work is because people knew that this was happening and there were feeding stations. And so they were dropping off their cats. Yeah. They're saying, I don't want them anymore, but I this, I know if they're out there, there are volunteers who are going to take care of them and make sure that they're okay. And if this is the outlet for unwanted cats, they will never work. You have to stop the stem of the cats coming yeah. into the population. If you want the population to decrease or even just stay the same. Um, so most bird websites will argue TNR is not a solution that we should really be considering seriously. Obviously they've got a bird in the race, I guess we could call it, but like they have a stake in the game and as conservationists really like they kind of have our stake in the game. We, we Mm -hmm. want to keep the ecosystem healthy. Right. And this is also to say that was 300 cats they got rid of. The city of Philadelphia has an estimated 400,000 stray cats. They have really robust TNR systems that are working. There's lots of places you can rent out uh, TNR traps and uh, from a bunch of different organizations, you can get them for free and you can be part of the system and volunteer, but it is just not something necessarily that you can expect to work in 17 years in Philadelphia. For sure. I get all of that. And so I guess I should say, and I don't want to steal your thunder for what we're going to talk about later, but I, what I will say is I think that TNR is a great tool. It should be one of multiple tools that we can use to help approach this problem. I should also say my mom's cat was TNR'd. My mom's cat, um, typically when a cat was TNR'd, they have a, not your ear. Yeah. They, they cut off the tip of the ear. Now that's like best practices. They just cut off the tip of the ear. So she was fixed and she got her ear tipped and vaccinated. And so she is part of that program. She was a well-known community cat and somebody TNR'd her, which is good. I'm glad (laughs) my mom did not want kittens around. Okay. TNR very popular, popular in the U S I would say it's another popular method because it is being used on a countrywide scale. And that is the one that we've been trying to avoid, which is lethal removal. So Australia has taken a different approach to reducing their feral cat population, which is shooting, targeted poisoning, and otherwise killing feral cats across the country. And Australia has established a goal of removing 2 million feral cats from the continent by 2020. This was between 2015 and 2020. I could not find if they were successful. I'm sorry. I know that that like time period has passed. <laughs> I couldn't actually find, but, uh, this is the reason that they're doing this is because, well, Sarah, why do, why would be the, the reason to do this over uh, TNR, right? Well, Australia is an isolated area of land. If you've got species that are endemic to your land that are being severely threatened by these species, then yeah, you, you're, they are trying to keep that balance in the ecosystem and protect those species. Yeah. A a scientist argued that like most of the native wildlife there is not only just endemic, but also the cat meal size. So (laughs) there's especially susceptible to being specifically hunted and killed by cats. And and I will just say like, is in as much as I say, like I couldn't do this. I'm also not faulting organizations or governments or whatever the case may be where this has happened. I don't like it. It makes me sad, but I do understand the complicated decisions and situations that we have related to this. Yeah. I it's, 
it really ends up happening as like a valuation of individual life. When I watched Seaspiracy, one of the people who was hunting whales argued one whale, how many chickens would equal one whale? Is it more ethical to kill a bunch of chickens or one whale? It's, it's a similar sort of argument when you have this here is that, is it one cat or is it all of the animals that that cat could kill over its lifetime? And if that cat is killing endangered species, can we really justify saving the cat over saving the endangered species? And one uh, sanctuary where they had bilbies, which is an endangered species, uh, there was a storm and cats got into the sanctuary, killed a bunch of bilbies, which is a little marsupial there, um, that amounted to a seventh of the remaining population. Wow. So they are a specific threat to Australian wildlife. One opposition article I read, which I thought was really interesting, argued that um, cats are good, actually, for the environment. It argued that like they reduce rat populations that preyed on birds, and also that they're good food for dingoes and coyotes. <laughs> um, and if the coyotes are eating cats, they're not eating native species. Um, but another article argued that Australian mammals are 20 times more likely to encounter a cat than they are a native Australian predator. Mm. So it really isn't apples to apples yeah, the and way if, they want to. If that out. statement is true, then that's another good illustration. And I haven't looked into it. I don't know if it is, but it, that's if the statement that that person made is true, then that's just another good illustration for the imbalance in right. the ecosystem that we're talking about here. Because I do want to illustrate that too, because I think there is still that tendency for people to fall back on saying, well, this is just, it's just natural. Cats are predators and this is natural. It, this And that's where I go back to the, the functional eradication or that, you know, that population control is there are too many of them. This is not natural. <laughs> and so how do we kind of stem that tide? Right. Uh, unlike in the U.S., Australians are actually, in general, very supportive of this move by the government. Okay. Um, the prime minister got hate mail from lots of celebrities um, who are making some real wild statements <laughs> about this decision. They have unique wildlife, and they take national pride in their wildlife. Mm-hmm. And so for them, this this the rhetoric around this is almost the same as like fighting a war. They are are talking about like this as a moral, morally right thing to do to get rid of an enemy to something that they identify with. And so most of the opposition has come from outside the country. Now there's been some publicized things where like, there's a bad video of a guy killing, trying to kill a cat, but it didn't go as exactly Mm -hmm. how he wanted. And there was a lot of outcry about that because it's also like, how are you killing these cats? Yeah. How cleanly, how humanely one of the guys who designed uh, the sausage, they basically like dump (laughs) this. uh, There's lots of ways they're shooting cats that with arrows and guns, there's like, things that will shoot targeted poison at them so that when they lick their, uh, you know, groom themselves, it will kill them. Sorry. I'm not trying to be super graphic. I just want you to know that there's like a lot of ways they are airdropping these sausages that have specifically cat killing poisons that Australian wildlife has developed a certain resistance to just mm-hmm. because they're related to each other that cats haven't. There's things where they have um, poison in the prey so that when it hits the acidity of a cat's stomach, that's when it metabolizes. What? So there are some wild things that they're trying to make sure that they're specifically killing cats, not killing native predators, not killing the prey species, 
yeah, they're working on as a total aside, let's work on this for other species as well. So that maybe we can avoid some of the rat poison environmental impacts and that sort of thing, man. Wow. I mean, one of the, they were like, well, foxes can also be killed this way, but foxes are also an invasive species in Australia. (laughs) So they're okay with that too. So, uh, so yeah, that's kind of the alternative way. Um, now there are some arguments and I really did not maybe do as long of research as I could have. I'm sure there's something out there, but there's an argument from cat advocates that if you kill the cats, there will be a vacuum effect. And we know the vacuum effect happens in coyotes. Basically, if you like kill a bunch of coyotes, the population then rebounds because there is more resources available to the remaining coyotes. So they have higher uh, litters of pups and they just come back in full force. There is an argument being made that the same thing will happen in areas of Australia where we get rid of cats is that the remaining cats will then just reproduce in greater numbers and you will just have to fight the same battle this is not a not resource intensive way of mm-hmm. managing cats. You, you will have to consistently try and continue to kill the cats. There's not going to be like a, a stop at, at, at any point, um, without some other measures going on, which we'll talk about. Right. And so, yeah, now I want to get to my conclusions <laughs> after spending many hours staring at articles and reading, I decided that these are the two solutions that are proposed and they are not actually the only solutions that are out there. Yeah. Well, I like, like, yeah, no, I think, yeah, I think, and I think you're going to talk about this. So again, I don't want to just say everything that you're about to say, but I have a feeling I'm going to agree with you is we, we can't, we're, those are both only working one end of the problem. Yes. And we need to work on the other end of the problem too. And that's where like last week we talked about one of our action items is being a responsible pet owner And this is a huge illustration of the need to be a responsible pet owner. So helping people understand that this is an issue. Don't let your cat go outside. Don't release your cat into the water. Like those sorts of, like we need to be working from that end of the problem too. Yeah, exactly. So, um, so first of all, one of the things that people brought up is basically in the TNR model, who's doing it? Sure. It's almost always either independent rescue organizations that are mainly run through volunteers. And we've had friends work at these. The staff they do have is extremely overworked and underpaid. They do not have the resources to typically do this at a scale, maybe at a smaller location where there's a fairly closed population of cats where you're not having migration from other populations as much. Maybe this is a, a easier sell, but I've volunteered at the city shelter and it is brutal, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, not because people don't care um, and not because there aren't amazing things happening there, but because there are too many cats, dogs, etc., coming into these rescues to be adequately handled. So we need to have more funds. We, we need to fund them. And it can't just be private donations. It has to be more dedicated government funds to animal rescues so that we have larger capacities and a better ability to do things like TNR, but also have more space for animals who need to be adopted. Unfortunately, like at the end of the day, there are too many cats, no matter which way you slice Mm -hmm. it. Adoptable cats are euthanized because of space issues in shelter. Friendly 
cats that would do great in a home that people don't want because there is not enough demand for the amount of cats available for adoption. Too many cats. We have to be uh, then, as you said, Sarah, better cat owners ourselves. Growing, so you've had cats, Sarah. Yes. Where have your cats come from? Did you get them from a breeder? Did you get them from a friend? Did you get them from a rescue? No, I mean, obviously that Jesse, we inherited, we, we actually did when I was younger than that, we found a cat in our garage that we took in Yeah, (laughs) and we weren't technically allowed to have cats. So we ended up giving that one to somebody else, but so it was adopted that way. And then my cat was a rescue from a vet clinic that I worked at, that he was found uh, as a stray and taken in. So all, and then, and then, oh my goodness, I'm forgetting like my main <laughs> cat that we had after Jesse left, we got Sam, Sam, you'll be, and he, we went to a shelter and adopted him. So yeah, they've all been sort of rescues in one form or another. There are cat breeders. There are specific breeds of cats. Um, most of the ones you see running around are just like domestic short hair cats. Mm-hmm. Like that's, what I would say the majority of them, they just come in a bunch of different colors. But there are cat breeders out there. Some people want really specific things from their cats um, and are willing to pay a lot of money for them. But I would say that most people I know, like my cat growing up, we found at the store. It was Mm a a litter of kittens from the feral cat that was running around who we didn't mind having around because we had lots of rats. (laughs) So um, so that and that's why a lot of people will tolerate feral Mm -hmm. cats going around. But we got him that way. Rue was a rescue, too. So a lot of people are already adopting cats. They're already finding cats. Most people are not looking to like buy a cat. (laughs) Most people are finding them. And so we need to spay and neuter our own cats. We can't look at them as this like non-maintenance animal that I feel like they're painted to like dogs. You have to do all this stuff for, but cats, you just kind of have, and like, you don't really have to do that's not true. We have to get them spayed and neutered. We have to get them vaccinated and you have to provide them with some sort of environmental enrichment in your home Mm -hmm. so that they don't have to quote unquote, go outside that they find a fulfilling life with good welfare indoors. And we have to integrate this education into our actual education system. So whether it's things, I know Girl Scouts already have certain programs that address things like this, but whether it's through informal things or literally in school, mm-hmm. <laughs> teaching people about the right ways to care for their cats and making sure they know what resources are available because there's lots of low cost spay and neuter clinics and giving people more resources about um, why cats are valuable and that dumping them is not okay. And I think people, people are already starting to switch the tide a little bit from like, meh, cat, like my grandfather did not care for cats. <laughs> and they were just sort of like, like if you go back a certain amount of time, people did not see the value in cats the way they do nowadays. This switch is already working. Euthanasia rates for animals in big cities have fallen 75% between 2009 and 2019. Like, I think this is unequivocally good news. Yeah. <laughs> um, in Indianapolis, for example, euthanasia rates fell from 44% of animals entering that shelter being euthanized down to 11%. So it's already happening, but we have to continue to work to make sure that we don't continue to add to the population like you're talking about. And we might need legislation to curb cat populations, whether that's cat curfew. We have to register our dog here in uh, Pennsylvania Mm -hmm. and pay like I'm sure lots of people don't, but like pay a fee and you have to pay more if your dog or cat or your dog is not neutered or spayed. Um, we don't have to register our cat. Maybe that's the, the way, the reason you do that is because it helps fund the animal control efforts. So maybe that's one of the ways to say you have to take responsibility for your cat. And we 
need lethal control in certain areas that are highly susceptible to predation. So if that's nature preserves for endangered species, if that's certain targeted areas where we just can't afford to lose certain species, we're going to have to implement that. So certain islands in Australia, they have designated as cat-free islands, and those are sanctuaries for animals that don't really exist on the mainland anymore. So these are all the things that I have (laughs) that I think kind of cover as many bases as possible. Yeah, I think those are really good. And I, you know, again, the last point makes me a little sad, but I do also agree with that to a certain extent. Like I, I understand that. And it's, you could argue that we, we do the same with other species. It's going to be more beneficial, like in, in those targeted areas, if it's going to be better for the environment, then yeah, we have to take that route. But I think coming at it from a combination of all of these things is really helpful. And this man, everyone, this is a hard, it really is. It's hard. Like I get it. I, have been sitting here with tears in my eyes for part of this discussion because I really, really do love cats. So if you, we're going to get to our challenges here in in a couple of minutes, but I, what I will say to you before that is just, if you are thinking differently in any way because of this conversation. So, you know, don't necessarily just don't, please don't think of this as us attacking cats, but hopefully maybe now more you understand the impact that cats can have. If you are a cat lover, you know, maybe think about it in that way. Like these are things that are going to help cats have better lives, hopefully in the end. And if you know somebody who has outdoor cats or you think, you know, if you feel comfortable just putting this information out there, sharing this episode out so we can help get that education piece in there. Think about that too, but we understand that. I mean, and this is true of a lot of things in conservation, that there are just some challenging things that we have to face and talk about. Right. And that whole last section there was a lot of my like feelings. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure there are other things I missed. I'm sure I'm not going to pretend like this is the scientific way to approach this problem, but this is not like some sort of clinical diagnosis Mm -hmm. of of what's going on. This is, we, we kind of talked about the pros and cons, but so much of it has to do with human emotions because humans brought cats here. Humans decided cats are an invasive species based on our criteria mm-hmm. and humans get to decide what we're going to do about it. Because if we just decide to let it go, there's, we're going to have such destructive consequences on the ecosystems that, uh, we can't really take back. So it's this, it's a tough subject, but the reason I approached it is because it's been causing me distress even just to have these cats running around because it's not good for them either. And and also, like, I know there's lots of reasons that people leave their cats outside. I understand that, like, if your cat's used to one thing, I get, like, mm-hmm. not wanting to disrupt their daily routine. I'm not here to pass judgment on like, nope. I know lots of people, including my mom, including, including my uncle who just myself, yeah. <laughs> you know, we've done it. We would let Indy go outside sometimes when I was a kid, like just, he was supervised, but he would just kind of hang around and like enjoy being a cat. And I'm sure he killed some stuff. Uh, and, and it happens. And it, that's just something that we can't necessarily take back, but also I'm not here to tell people that, uh, that they're bad people for wanting to do something that they perceive as good for their cats. But I think we've covered most of our bases and hopefully you guys, I learned a lot, but hopefully this was valuable for you and we're going to get to our actions of the week so we can do something about it. 
All right, we are back for our action of the week. This is something we assign every week to uh, try and spur some positive movements, whether it's learning something new or taking an action that's going to improve conservation or your knowledge base. Um, So this week I have two different ones. One is if you have a cat, if you're looking to get a cat, (laughs) I guess we'll start there plan not to let them go outside. So then you don't have to have any guilt about Mm -hmm. disrupting their routine. But if you have a cat that goes outside and you cannot bring yourself to keep it as an indoor cat, I get it. Like my mom's one of these people. I don't know if I had personally a cat that wanted to like, that was used to going outside that I'd be able to just shut it inside. I get that. Make it a point to play with them. They have shown that vigorous play and a high protein diet are two ways to reduce pet cats hunting species outdoors. They do it for fun, not just for food. Mm -hmm. So if you can give them the fun (laughs) and you're fulfilling a certain dietary requirement of that high protein, they are less likely to go out and kill prey. So if you've got an outdoor cat, play with it. It's going to help. Can I add just a couple of asides to that or kind of like, so the other thing I would say is if, if you are wanting to try to keep your outdoor cat inside, but you're struggling with it or your cat is being annoying and continuously like what yeah. asking to go outside or something like that. Stick with it for a little bit. Be patient. Look online. There are some tips and resources that you can find to help kind of with that transition. So try, try. I know cats can be persistent, uh, but do try. Um, the other thing I would say is if you are letting your cat outdoors, I'm going to add to Casey's challenge. And uh, yes, those are definitely some things that you should do. Please, please still give them vet care and make sure that yes. they're fixed. If, if that's where you feel like you need to be at with your cat, letting them go outside. Cause again, I like barn cats, you know, whatever road horses or whatever. And I, I mean, I have friends that have barn cats, like that's what they do. Like they provide care for their cats. And I feel like that's right. a good sort of balance to try to strike there. Right. Great point, Sarah. I'm glad that you brought that up. Also, you can like limit them to certain times of day, the less time that they're outside, the better and getting things like a cat tree, a scratching post, uh, opening a window every once in a while is also going to alleviate some of those things that they're trying to get from being outside. But number two, if you want to go on the beast mode and you actually want to help with, uh, you, maybe you don't have a cat. Maybe you already have a cat inside. Maybe you really love cats. Maybe you really love birds. I don't know what your motivation (laughs) is, but if you want to help with TNR efforts, because that is what's legal here. (laughs) If you want to help with TNR efforts to help reduce cat populations, to help keep it at a more sustainable level, um, look to your local shelter. In Indianapolis, I know the Face Clinic helps with TNR and in Philly, Catadelphia, as well as ACCT, which is the city shelter, have loans for traps for TNR. There's probably a Friends of Alley Cats or I saw Carol's Ferals. Like there's all (laughs) sorts of different names for local chapters who are really in support of cats. And maybe they are on the same page as you where they are just genuine cat lovers who want the best for the cats that are living outside. And so you can be part of that and you can give these cats a better quality of life by helping with TNR. Awesome. Good point. I might need to do that. Honestly, Hey, from one of the articles I read in the Philadelphia Inquirer, the people who does this said it's like extremely satisfying because you're pretty likely to catch a cat if you do it right. And like, it's one of those things where you're like, it's tangible. I did it one cat down. Like I've, Mm -hmm. I've helped vaccinate it. I've helped reduce the potential that it's uh, breeding, which is also like 
good for them too, because um, breeding and mating is actually a very resource intensive thing for cats to go through. And so to do it many times a year (laughs) is extremely taxing on their bodies. Um, So it really can help cats. So And if you're from a different country that has a different approach to cats than TNR, if you're from Australia, or maybe you're from a different area that's controlling cats in a different way, um, or have different programs around, please let us know because we want to know. We obviously didn't cover the whole spectrum, even though this is a really long episode. Thanks for listening. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But hopefully uh, we'll, we'll hear from some of you guys about how organizations in your area are tackling the problem of invasive cats, because if you're not on Antarctica, chances are you have some cats. (laughs) All right. Thanks, Casey, for leading this discussion, which, as we've talked about, was a long time in coming. This is something that we kind of wanted to talk about. And we're, uh, I don't want to say afraid, but we knew it could be a tough thing to talk about. So thanks for taking it on. And if you have suggestions for future episodes or want to get in touch with us for any other reason, we've got a lot of contact methods. We're on Facebook a little greener podcast. We're on Instagram at a little greener pod. We are on Twitter. And if you have a Twitter, I suggest following us on there just because it is really easy to share other things. So if we come across a cool news article or a volunteer opportunity, we can, we'll we'll be sharing things like that out over there as well. So we don't just share the exact same things across all of our social medias, but uh, we're at Twitter at a greener pod. I think it is. And then uh, you can email us at a little greener podcast at gmail.com. We're always happy to hear from you. Thanks for listening guys. We'll talk to you next week. Bye. Bye.